one in a row shit! Well, what the hell are we supposed to do, you moron? War's over, man. Wormer dropped the big one. What? Over? Did you say over? Nothing is over until we decide it is! Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? Hell no! Germans? Forget it, he's rolling. And it ain't over now. Cause when the going gets tough, the toughs get going. Who's with me? Let's go! Come on! Feel to be back. It's it's good to be back home. I like being back home. Um, the snow's melted, which I know is good news for everybody, and it's good news for a lot of things. But it kind of sucks because there's dog shit everywhere, <laughs> right? So it's like when I left, it was really pretty. It was like the you know the end of The Shining, which I think is pretty. Uh, and then I come back, and the snow is melting, and dog shit everywhere so it's a real bummer to walk our dog it's kind of like i hate the people in my neighborhood because it's like we can see this it's not invisible dog shit just because you pick it don't pick it up doesn't mean that the fucking shit is invisible do do you guys get that at all in your neighborhood or you guys don't live in the city so people probably actually give a fuck right well that's the but that's what that's what i experienced in my backyard which is where my dog uses the facilities and so when the snow melts in the backyard it's just covered in dog shit and then uh just to keep the robbie benson thread going for yet another fucking oh, week on this podcast, here we go i was watching the jeremy blu-ray yesterday and there were current interviews with robbie benson and glennis uh-huh. o'connor who's the co-star of jeremy a movie they made when they were teenagers in 1970 Three, and they were talking about shooting that movie on the streets of New York, and Glynis O'Connor was specifically talking about how streets, sidewalks in New York in 1972 and 1973, this was before there were any rules for dog walking and having to pick up any dog poop. And so the streets of New York, and I remember this too growing up, were just littered. Right. It was with the dog wild shit. west of do- yeah, yeah, the wild <laughs> wild west of dog shit. Yeah, right. It's like Deadwood for dogs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, Glynis O'Connor was like the Ian McShane of 1972 New York City. That's exactly what I was going to say. I, I, I mean, it's, it's so crazy. Yeah, so, Gabe, you're not dealing with any of that? and uh, No, there's no snow here, no snow to melt. So I, I can see the, the poop, you know, a mile away if I'm walking, if it's light out. So it's, it's fine. You know, a lot of people pride themselves on being able to see the poop a mile away. But... Gabe really is someone who can see the poop a mile away. I mean, he's got that poop detector. He can see it a mile away. Hey, Gabe, 
First of all, I, I want to apologize to Gabe last week for sounding racist. Uh, really? I, I don't remember. Uh, well, I didn't realize this was happening until I, I, I listened back to last week's episode to, you know, check to see if I was racist. I and, think I know what you're talking about. I almost cut that line out. Right. And then I was and, like, eh, fuck No, it. I'm, I'm glad you didn't because now I have something to talk about. So <laughs> it starts and Gabe goes, hey, Scott, you know, you're, you're like, got coffee? I was like, yeah, yeah, I've got coffee. And we were doing last week's episode on uh, Gabe's lunch hour. So I asked Gabe, whose last name is Rodriguez, if he had tacos or burritos or enchiladas because it's lunch hour. Now, I wasn't asking Gabe if he had tacos, burritos, or enchiladas because he's Mexican. I was asking him that because Gabe likes tacos, burritos, and enchiladas. But it <laughs> sounded like I was being racist. So I want to apologize to you, Gabe. I was not being racist. I don't even remember this conversation, first of all. And second, there's a pretty good assumption that I'm eating tacos for lunch because I, you know. Exactly. Actually, I just found a taco truck that drives by my house at one o'clock every day for the construction workers across the street. Yeah. And uh, that's racist. No, they, they are across the street. They're construction okay. workers. They're all Mexican. Well, right. See, that's racist. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> but I did cut out the part where you asked me if I was going to be eating matzo ball soup and chocolate. So. <laughs> well, thank I did God. A little editing. I mean,. It's okay if I'm a little racist, but not that racist. I mean, that is just crazy. The right? anti-Semitism but had to go. Had to go. It's got to go. Uh, but yes, so Gabe <laughs> loves tacos, burritos, and enchiladas. I mean, I love tacos, burritos, and enchiladas. But have you, ha have you found your place? Because Gabe uh, had his places for lunch when he lived in Waukegan. And since he's moved down to... Are you in North Carolina or South I'm, Carolina? I'm actually in South Carolina right now. Yeah, South. Same thing. So now that you're down there, you cannot find good Mexican food, right? The, me the Mexican food is a lot different down here. It's See, not good. I this is where it turns place. out that we find out that Scott doesn't look at any of the local H social media because Gabe posted a picture this week of the of the taco truck that and that he discovered a block from his offices and i wanted to ask you as as any as other people were questioning too what the fuck are some of those menu items on that truck what's a burger a burger burgerisa burgerisa <laughs> excellent pronunciation first, first of all i don't even speak spanish I, I looked at it just like you did okay I said i saw tacos i said please no meat no carne and we got six of those and they were pretty good so they gave you a burger <laughs> no it, it, it was it was pretty good. I didn't get there's hot sauce though. I should have got the hot sauce. The wife said, "Why didn't you get the green sauce?" I, I always forget. I got my are, own sauce here. Are you a red or a green man? I'm green when it comes to <laughs> tacos, but I'm red when it comes to enchiladas. Well, Gabe, are you a vegetarian as well? Yes, I am. I'm going God on damn. three. I think Gabe, you were a vegetarian before I was, and I think Gabe got me into vegetarianism, right? Something like that. Uh, we kind of, rub, you know, we kind of ran with the same circle of people, and I was around ninety or ninety-one. And you, you might have been right around there too. Yep, exactly, mm. exactly. Mm -mm -mm. Hey, Gabe, I've got a song for you. Gabe and I are slightly obsessed with songs that save the chorus until the end. I don't know if you have this same obsession, Ben. 
Do you know about this? <laughs> Give me an example of one, and I'll tell you. All right, you well, the, to me, the best example of a, a song that saves the chorus until the end is Don't Stop Believing. So, you know, it... Right. Like, you, do, you don't hear that chorus until the very end, and then it repeats over and over and over. In fact, when the guitar solo comes in, it plays the melody of the chorus, which you Before haven't even you heard ever hear yet. The chorus. Right, which I absolutely fucking love. Um, but, yeah, we're, we're absolutely obsessed with songs that save the chorus until the end. What's your favorite chorus until the end song, Gabe? I, I was thinking Stone in Love, but maybe that's not a song that does that. Does no, that, not, no. It, it, Stone in Love has the choruses. The ending is sort of like a, I don't know, a, 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 a coda. That's not a chorus. It's like well, a, a B but, section. That's like Layla. That's like, you know, the B section okay. of Layla. But that song that I'm thinking about is Underwear by Triple Fast Action. Right, because they, they, they actually the, say <laughs> we're saving the chorus until the end. Yes. Right. And I mean, X-French T-shirt by Shudder to Think has the chorus until the end. Yep, you're right. I like a song that's got as many different hooks as you can possibly cram into one song. And my favorite uh, my favorite example of that is the Cheap Trick song, uh, Tonight It's... What, fuck, what's the name of that song? Tonight I'm Yours? Tonight It's You? Tonight It's You. Tonight, tonight It's You. Every single part of that song is hookier than the one that came before it. And you're just like, are they ever going to stop throwing fucking memorable hooks at us? And well, that's like, no. That's like Def Leppard. That's like Photograph. <laughs> yeah. Like every song on Pyromania has three choruses. It's fucking amazing. Uh, but, but let me ask you, is there a local H song where you did the save the chorus to the end? I'm, I mean, I'm struggling to think of these. I'm struggling the to think of one, too. I, I don't think there is. I don't think we've gotten there yet. Next album, dude. Next Let's do album. It. You got a song with you got a song with more than one chorus though. Or like a pre chorus and a and a chorus. Maybe. I can't I'm struggling to think of one of them right now. But I but I, I bring all this up because uh, I got a song for you and I want you to listen to it in the next episode you can tell me what the fuck's going on here because it's not really a chorus at the end, but it is. It's it's a song called If It's Gonna Get Better by Genesis. Don't ask me why I was listening to uh Genesis self-titled record, the one with Mama on it. But this is the last song on the record, and I don't know what's going on. It sounds like this part that comes up that maybe it's one of those songs that starts with the chorus, but it isn't. And then this part at the end isn't really the chorus, but it there's some sort of uh, release like a chorus has, you know what I mean? It's kind but of I, funny that you mentioned Genesis because they have a song that's all about the parts of a song abacab right yeah abacab <laughs> right is this so, what gabriel singing no this is a phil collins uh genesis okay. so it's the last that. song on, on genesis so you guys listen to that song and then next episode we can try to figure out what the hell is know. happening there's a self-titled genesis album that's got the song mama on it that must be like very late late period genesis no it's like 83 it, oh. it's, it's a record with uh, That's All, Just a Shame, That's All on it. And it has this song on there called uh, Illegal Alien, which is oh, yeah, yeah. the worst song ever <laughs> yeah. written. Yeah. And I was, I was going, okay, I'm going to let this play because maybe it's not as bad as I remember. And it's worse. It so is, after, that after, song's racist. After Duke and after Phil Collins took over on vocals, they then released a self-titled album? Yes. Those fucking idiots. They had nowhere left to go. 
Wow. There, you know, then there were three, and then it's, you know. So I want to bring up one more thing, and I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but there's this thing on Twitter that uh, Local H got dragged into. It's this thing called March Pladness. Have you seen this? Yeah. You've seen yes. this? Okay. So it's this thing on Twitter, and it's basically laid out like a basketball tournament, and but it's for grunge songs or songs from the grunge era. But in, in reality, like maybe 10% of the songs are actually grunge songs. So it's all alternative songs from the early 90s. So anyway, it's bands in each bracket. They're up against each other. Like Sunny Day Real Estate is up against Nirvana. Uh, they had Veruca Salt up against Live. We were up against Pearl Jam. But each song has an essay attached to it. And the essays are great. Like the Root of Me essay is awesome. Uh, the PJ Harvey Root of Me essay. So each song has an uh, essay attached to it, and all the writers are really great. And the guy who wrote the essay for our song, uh, this guy's named John Melillo, and, and he's a writer and he's a teacher at the University of Arizona. He's got a book that got published last year called The Poetics of Noise from Dada to Punk, which sounds like a pretty good book. Um, and he's also got a band called Algae and Tentacles. So I just wanted to give a shout out to what those people are doing over there because all the essays are really, really good and I can't stop reading them. And I think they're better than the songs that they're attached to. <laughs> well, that, that essay he wrote is amazing. Have you reached out to him? Talked to him? Uh, there, there was like a little bit of a, uh, they were talking about the fact that we were rhyming just don't get it with copacetic and I had to explain that that's not the rhyme. The rhyme is copacetic and pathetic. It's It's a the rhyme comes at the end of two and four. It's not a one, one and two. So that was about all we, we uh, said to each other or tweeted to each other. But he's aware that, that we're aware. And, and yeah, I mean, it's a really good, really good essay. Uh, and I think he, he says a lot about, like, there's this line he says, there's something about minor voices, the voices that are perhaps underrated or forgotten by the mass projections and delusions of immense popularity that helps answer the question, how do you survive this shit? And I think that says more about what I think what we're trying to do with this podcast than anything I've said so far. So <laughs> maybe we should get him to do it. Well, you didn't talk about the actual contest, though, because it was Local Age versus Pearl Jam and Local Age beat them. In the, in, the, in the round, and now you go on down to the next round at 32. So who who is local H up against in the next I, round? I don't know. We'll find out. You know what? Ha we'll find out what happens with that next week. The, 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 the one other thing is that for all his fancy words, John never talks about tacos or burritos, so he's not actually suitable for this podcast. Exactly. Thank you. Now I feel so much better. Uh, any other business you guys got? I was gonna. I was gonna ask this guy's. The, the, we got two questions on our last podcast on the SoundCloud thing from the same guy, Jeremy Norin, who asked the, the, some confusing questions to me. And maybe w when we bring Andy here, he can help with this. But okay. would would the narrative arc of Pack Up the Cats benefit from a revisit, recontextualization through the lifer's lens? I don't know. I don't. Uh I think he's trying to, uh, yeah, you can't do that. I mean, that, that would be a hindsight thing, and Pack Up the Cats only works in the moment. You can't, because Pack Up the Cats through the lifer's lens is lifers. Right. 
And he also won't have, he also says, how about picking apart Gig Bag Road, which is not on Lifers, but maybe the Lifersiest track from the H in a while. Do you I agree think, with that? Yeah, I absolutely agree, agree with that. Uh, you know, because that is like a true Lifers song. It's about people who are in the, the gig economy when it comes to bands. Um, and that is like a completely different thing. I mean, those people will play, you know, five different shows a night. You know, the people who, the gig bag set of musicians where, you know, and if you go to Nashville, like everybody in Nashville is like this. Like, hey, you want to come to the show? It's like, uh, what time are you playing? I've got five shows that night. Maybe I can see a couple songs. And, um, but yeah, those people are something else because they're on a whole different level of, they know everything. They know all of your songs. They know everybody's songs. And, but, uh, who was that that asked that This question? guy, Jeremy. But, and he has one last thing, and this one I, I'm totally confused by. Maybe one of you knows. He's talking about the Juliana episode, and we were talking about lyrics. And I think we were talking about mis, mis, uh, uh, misinterpreted lyrics that are right. on the internet. And right, he right, says, right, right. What, what are the lyrics? And he says, pig, fool, question mark. I don't remember. Did we, were we talking about a song that had lyrics that were, had something to do with pig, fool? Gabe, is there a Juliana Hatfield song with Pig Fool in it? I don't, I don't even recall that. Maybe he was talking about a local age song. I, I don't know. I All was right. talking. I know I was talking about the replacement song Valentine, but I don't think there was anything close to Pig Fool. But maybe, maybe that's what it was. I, it's not. Is there one of our songs that is Pig Fool? I don't know. Good question. Most, most songs have either pig or fool in the lyrics. I think so. The good ones. No, I don't know. The good ones, Ben. The good ones have pig or fool. Uh, but they save so, until the end. Yes, exactly. But if, you, if anybody has questions, send them in, and we will answer them, and uh, we'll answer a lot more questions next week. Let's see what records Gabe has in the background this week. <laughs> well, we were talking about Overkill from mm-hmm. Planet Work, and my first record I ever bought was Twisted Sisters Stay Hungry. Right. And I have the Men at Work uh, was it business as usual? Vinyl as well. Notice I said vinyl, not vinyls. I hate when people say vinyls. That's terrible. <laughs> it's like people who go to the jewels, or or you know, used to get Rolling Stones delivered to their. Well, what about magazine. when people talk about their record collection? They say I have this many pieces of vinyl. I, I that's disturbing to me too. And I don't know records. It's records. But anyway, yeah, I got records. The, goddamn it. The Stay hungry, and I got the Metallica Master Puppets for the 35 year anniversary. Nice, nice, nice. Did you see them do a uh, uh, battery on, on Stephen Colbert? It, it was it was good. I it mean, was tight. It was good. Yeah, I mean, I, they can still. I mean, they're they're still great. I mean, there's I got no problem. No, no, and and that is yeah. a great record. Oh yeah, it's, it's when uh, when you were doing that brief run of opening shows for them, did you stick around and watch your set every night? Every night. <laughs> not not only did we stick around, we got in the pit. Oh the really? The I'm snake pit. pit. Was that was it was called the snake pit? <laughs> yeah, Sla- the snake pit. Slash wasn't there. <laughs> it was the VIP area up front where, where they go around and walk down the catwalk and you can see both sides of them. Yeah, we we had a we had a great time. I mean that was kind of the whole point of the entire tour for us. Yeah. At least for me and Gabe. Yeah, there was one night we had to leave to, to for a long drive after the show, and that was the one night they played blackened and we missed uh... it. And we just saw a set list the next night. But other than that, after every show we got done, we packed up and then went out and watched them in the front row. Every night we were pulling for Blackened. And then the one night we had to leave, 
As soon as we left, they played Blackened. You see, just goes to show you, it's that's always the way. <clears throat> All right, uh, <laughs> you know, welcome to uh, the Lifers podcast. This is our fourth episode, and I, we still haven't figured out how to do it. Um, but uh, I'm Scott Lucas from. Look, we don't have need to do this. Gabe and Ben here. Me. Hi, everybody. Gabe and ben. How's it going? And we've got a, a guest tonight. Um, and uh, this guest is kind of like, like I've known Andy for probably longer than just about anybody, at least as far as people go in the Chicago music scene. And Andy has been uh, a collaborator. Uh, like a member of the band for for years and years and years and uh so he's our guest tonight and andy gerber is here and are you there andy i'm here <laughs> there he is we're we're actually doing some recording at andy's studio today so i am in the the room that i record in and andy is in the room that he sits in presses uh, buttons and tells me to do it again so That's we right. can see each other through this window. Yes. I was commenting earlier how uh, great Scott's background looks. Uh, the ceiling. That's something. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, you did that. I this did is that. production design courtesy With my of own Andy bare Gerber. Hands. Yeah. <laughs> so Andy Gerber, the owner of Million Yen Studios here in Chicago, where we've been making records since two thousand three. It's right? shocking the amount of uh of the local H catalog that has been recorded here, actually, to me, it's it is. I, I uh, Andy's got all of the uh, CDs in the, in the other room, and I and I brought them with me, and it's it's a it's a real handful. <laughs> and that's probably not even all of them, right? Um, uh, yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things that maybe there's a couple of Married Men record records in here too. Uh, yeah, I think you've almost got everything. You don't have the live in Europe record here, but that was Which I do really have on vinyl. Here. It's that's up front. Oh, you got it on vinyls? I got it on the vinyls. The kids, they love the vinyls. They love know. the vinyls. They're crazy that way. But yeah, how about it? It's like Scott, uh, Scott and I have been working together like since what? Like the 90s or something? It's been at least the 90s, right? Well, well, let's go back further. Like when before I lived in Chicago, and I would come down on the weekends to hang out, or uh, we play gigs at the Avalon, which is uh, an old club here in Chicago, which Joe used to work at, actually, right? Right, Joe Daniels. That's, used that's to work my at. my first memory of Local H is Joe telling me as my bands would load in and load out about the band. And then I think you guys played with uh, an early version of Rust Bucket when you guys were, I think, a three-piece still at that point. Yeah, like with Like in Matt. DeKalb or something. Yeah. And then we played, like, Art Harrison had that birthday party where he wanted all his favorite bands, and it was, like, Laughing Man and Local H. And that's when I first, like, you know, Joe had been telling me about the band and then, like, you know, I was like, okay. And Ellen actually told me about the band, too. So I was like, okay, you know, they've been, see if they live up to the hype. And sure enough, you guys were fucking awesome. So we didn't just meet each other because I was at 
a Rust Bucket show. It was you heard about it from Joe, and then Joe Joe was always obviously talking up his band, and then like Ellen when you know had come back from DeKalb playing with you guys. She's like, yeah, these guys have it going on. There's something special about this band. It's like, okay, well, we'll see. And then uh, when I saw you guys play, like I remember that you were wearing like a really cool suit. Like you you were very sartorial put out. Um, I and, did? Uh, yeah, yeah. It was like <laughs> something wow. wacky. And Joe just like looked like he was insane, which I didn't know because he's such a he was such a nice guy when he was like you know carrying our stuff up up the stairs of the Avalon, you know, and all of a sudden there was behind the drum set like a crazy man. I was like, holy shit, what are these kids doing? Well, you were... at that point that was one of your early shows as a two piece, I think, actually. Yeah, well, the first show that we did as a two piece was at Art Harrison's birthday thing. That's right. Well, that was literally the first one. That That's the show the I'm talking first, about. That was the first one, and and and. That's uh, the show I'm talking about. Yeah. So Scott, that, what were you wearing? I don't think like you if that a, was a show, I was wearing a Sonic Youth shirt. No, and no, you were baggy in a suit. shorts. No, 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 no. You, no, no. You were not a grunge <laughs> kid that day. You were wearing like it was funky. It had like. It wasn't like a normal suit. It wasn't like a suit you'd wear to the office. Like it had crazy shit on it. No, that 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 show. I've I, I know what I was wearing because the photos are in that book that we put out. Twenty five really? years of skin in the game. Are you telling me my memory oh, is faulty? I, I am. And Gabe's going to go to the book and he's going to look it up. And you are going to see me wearing a be, Sonic Youth shirt. And you're am I going to be proven silly. wrong? But how do we know that it's from that show? Because I remember you wearing a kooky. Because that was the first one. Suit. Because we had. Gabe played drums because we decided to end the show with a cover of Do You Feel Like We Do by Peter Frampton. Was and that a, was that some, Art's birthday party or was that, that was Art's different? birthday party? You sure? Maybe. No, I think you're thinking about something different. Oh, was that the one where we had the guy from Interscope come out? And that's we what blew, it was. We blew yes. the whole deal by yes. playing Peter Frampton. Okay, exactly. That's what we're talking about. How the yeah. hell do you guys remember this stuff? I don't remember any of this except playing the drums to Frampton. And right. I think he brought a whistle. To, to play on Manny's and Malay's, but I, I, I don't even remember all this stuff. I don't know. Well, no, you start by that point, Gabe, you started doing the whistle on Cynic. I don't know if it was Manny's and Malay's. Uh, okay, I did it on Manny's and Malay's before you, you rewrote it again, and, but I did it on Cynic. All right, well, well, I don't remember wearing a suit. I might have, uh, I was kind of. It was kinda... a kooky suit, though. It was like something weird. It had weird fabric. It, it might have been like, I was. Used to like dress like I was a a, a communist in uh, the the 40s. Maybe no, that's it wasn't what it like was. that. It, it was it was like a normal suit, but just the fabric it was made out of it was weird. And then, like I said, Joe looked just looked like a crazy person, and it was fucking great. You know, it was local age. Hmm. I don't know. I remember we played with Sunny Day Real Estate at that club uh, when they were recording their first record with Brad Wood here in town. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we played a. A few other times. We were played shows with Russ Bucket. And I, yeah, I don't know if we ever played times. with your band. Andy was in a band called Laughing Man. Was that a J.D. Salinger reference? Or did, am I... Yeah, totally. Okay. Did, Gabe, did you find the picture? Yeah, he showed it. You I, need to you're click, not change your view, Scott, so you can see us all. Because Gabe's been oh, showing I, all I am shit. seeing everybody, but... Oh, uh, I, I'm busy. seeing everybody in like a... Yeah. So that, uh, is that the Sonic Youth shirt? Yes, yeah. uh, there's yeah. a picture of. Yeah, I don't remember. This. Oh my that god! Was, some... That's that's not the Art Harrison birthday party. That's not okay. That's that possible. Uh, that's What's in Scott's mouth? What is that? 
Uh, it's just probably, uh, I don't know. My could be, it could be anything, really. <laughs> so, so Andy was part of the whole Rust Bucket crew. Uh, Laughing Man and Rust Bucket would play, and Rust Bucket was my favorite band from Chicago at the time. So it was like, did you record their cassette, the Suck Baby Smoke Coke thing, Andy? Um, Matt Allison did something, and I did a bunch of stuff, too. Um, I can't remember which one that one was. Okay. All right. So Andy and everybody in Rust Bucket, Terry, Dan, and Andy and Ellen, uh, they all kind of took us under their wing, and and, uh, and that was cool. You know, I'd come down and hang out with you guys and go see a show, and then I'd take the train back. So I've known you for the, for quite a while, and... Uh, and that's the end of the show. Yeah, yeah. That was are. a good one. Yeah. We got all the <laughs> We got them all. But, but you weren't recording at the, that time, were you? I mean, when did you start recording started, bands? The, the, when I really started, um, God, when, it was probably like 80 or 80, 93 or 94. I mean, I had been doing stuff with my bands and other people's bands a little bit before that. But when I finally had enough gear to sort of start doing recordings, it was probably like 94, I would say. Okay. And you were doing it out of your house? Um, well, we finally got... Um, I was doing some stuff out of my house. But then Rust Bucket, like, we had this crappy rehearsal space... And next door to it was there was this REM cover band that had the big space, Ooh. and this was up on Jarvis Street. Um, and what they, were they called? I, I can't even remember, but they would be, you know, covering REM, which was great, you know, whatever. And uh, so finally they moved out, and we got the big space, and it had a little office off the side, and that was when I was like, okay, this could be a studio. And that's when I started taking it a little more seriously and invested a little more in the gear. And uh, it was not that long after that that you guys came in to do the demos for As Good As Dead, you know? Like, you guys were within the first year of us kind of making it a real recording studio, you know? I kind of figured out what was the the minimum amount of crap that I needed, you know, headphones, mic cables, microphones, mic stands, to sort of be able to record a rock band like ours, either, a, a you know, two guitar-based drums or one guitar-based drums. And I, I, I took... The, the big leap of, of committing to that and a 16-track analog um, open reel deck and said, hey, I'm open for business, you know? Right, right. I mean, it blows my mind that, like, I mean, we were basically recording in your house or something no, like that. No, it wasn't my house. It was, in, it was in, like, you know, it was like a storefront, basically. Not, th not dissimilar to what we're in now, you know. Uh -huh. But, yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. Well, we had done the, the demos that we had done for and recording, like, you know, 7-inch and all that kind of stuff. That was done in Zion. So, with Jeff. Yeah, with Jeff Murphy from Shoes. So when it came time to do demos for uh, As Good As Dead, and, and that was a thing. Like, we didn't have enough songs. They're like, just go in and make some demos. And we went in and re we recorded seven songs with you, right? Something it was like, like five, five to seven songs. You know, it was definitely high five and motherfucker. Um, uh, it was uh, nothing special. Freeze right. dried flies. Um, Bound for the floor. 
Bump with Floor, which was called New One at the time. Like that's what, like in my in my handwriting, that's what it's called, New One. Must have been a new one. Yeah, and uh, it was. I think it was only five songs. And then Joe was encouraged, so he was like, "This is good enough." And you did a couple on the on the uh, on the uh, karaoke machine. Oh right, we had the karaoke machine. I feel like we did. A, 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 I think we recorded "No Problem" with you. We did was do that, "No Problem." We yeah, did we "No did Problem,", no problem. Yep. and I think there was "Freeze Dried Flies." Did you mention that? Yeah, I said "Freeze Dried Flies." Okay, "Freeze Dried Flies" uh, for sure. I think we did seven tunes with you, and then, wasn't that many? It yeah, might be. and then the rest of them. Uh, we did on a shitty karaoke machine uh, that I won in a singing contest. <laughs> and, and we did all the... You remember that, right, Gabe? I remember that. Uh, the fact that you won it uh, wasn't... I mean, I, I just... The story is, is not vague in my memory, but I remember it a little bit. But I, I was trying to get back that, to... Do you have those recordings to all those all those early demos still? Or? I was going to say, didn't that, that tape mysteriously disappear of, like, uh, Eddie Vedder and stuff? Yeah, the Eddie Vedder where I played all the instruments. Yeah, yeah it did mysteriously, mysteriously disappear. Mysteriously disappear. <laughs> Can I ask, uh, how, how does one record demos on a karaoke machine? Okay, so the karaoke machine has uh, it's a, a two cassette players in it. Like, it's a double cassette player thing. So you would record, and then you'd switch the cassettes, and then you'd play, and then while you were playing it, it would record what you were playing in the cassette, and then it would, you would record something new. It's like sound so, on sound. Right, so you would just keep bouncing back and forth. Uh, you didn't oh, want to do too right. many overdubs, but you'd do about maybe four. And then, and yeah, like we did that with Eddie Vedder and uh, back in the day. And uh, I remember when that songs. album came out and I heard Eddie Vedder, I was like, where the hell was that song, you know? Mm. <laughs> yeah, that was one of, that was a new, new one. That was definitely one of the last songs that we did. It's a great one. Well, you've got the demo of Bound for the Floor that we did with you had this yes. whole middle section. And maybe we can find that and, and uh, we can play it at the end of this episode. Um, yeah. yeah. It had a whole another bridge. And uh, as I like to always point out, like the line, uh, Drinking Up My Nerve, you threw out of both of your hit singles. It was originally in both uh, Bound for the Floor and uh, All the Kids. All the Kids. There was yeah. a... You threw that line out of both those songs. And you still, has it ever been in a, I think it's a good line. I like it. I understand it. Someday. It's a, One of these you know, days. wasn't good enough. wasn't good enough. So when did you move into uh, the Million Yen, the studio that we're sitting in right now? So basically what happened, like the stuff that we did, all the early uh, Local H stuff and the Fig Dish stuff and whatnot, um, up, in Jar- up on Jarvis Street in Rogers Park, that was in the 90s, and the neighborhood was gentrifying. The building we were in was gentrifying, and I got the heave-ho, like, in 98 or 99. And I kind of, like, you know, I was like, okay, well, I had been kind of, you know, doing it part-time. I was like, if I'm going to keep doing this, I have to either stop goofing around and do it seriously or just give it up. You know, I was getting also to a certain age where it was like, you know, it was kind of shit or get off the pot. Mm-hmm. Time. So, like, in the late late 90s, um, I had been booted from that space, and I was looking for a building around, you know, the north side that made sense. And this, I found this building, and it, you know, 
fit my budget and it fit my sort of parameter of what I felt I needed to do with the studio, having the experience of recording bands for three or four years and sort of a makeshift setup. And uh, that's when I committed. So, yeah, I bought this building on the 13th of January, 2000, and I've been here ever since. I think the first session was uh, uh, Starball. Wow. You know, yeah. Zelenko, Mike Zelenko built most of the studio, and his band was the first session. It was probably in April of 2000. Mike Zelenko from Material Issue. Yep. Yeah, Mike, uh, Mike did most of the carpentering in this, in this studio. Wow. Yeah. So that was it. Like you were kind of like buying the studio was your uh, was your shit or get off the pot moment. This was your moment where you're like, I've got to decide to fucking do this. Totally, totally. Yeah. Like my marriage had broken up. I had a like a weird career in advertising that could have gone one way or the other. And I had been dicking around in the music business for God knows how long. And I was kind of like, okay, well, I could either walk away from this all. Or I could commit a little further and see where it takes me, and uh, and I decided to, to you know roll the dice and give it a shot. And Why did you are. walk away from advertising? What what was it that like just made you say I got to get the fuck out of this? Well, advertising is very soul sucking. You know, it's a horrible, horrible industry. You know, at very I've seen best, Revolutionary Road. I haven't seen that. I've I've lived it. I used to I used to watch uh, Thirty Something when I was in my twenties and laugh yeah. at it. Yeah, I would oh. laugh at it. I thought it was I thought it was a comedy, and then like all of a sudden it was my life, and I was like, oh my god, what have I become? Uh. So yeah, I was working in advertising, soul sucking and horrible. And like you're surrounded by these people who think they're making great art. It's like no, you're selling tampons, douchebag. You know, <laughs> it's fucking awful. And uh, but but. You know, it was a lucrative career, and I probably should have stuck with it. But, you know, I followed my heart. I mean, my thing is, like, you know, I'd rather be confronted with failure than the what-ifs. Like, I've always thought the what-ifs are the worst thing that you can face. So it's like, you know, you, you take your shots, and, you and you know, where the chips fall is where they fall. And it's like, you know, but if you don't even... If you don't even try, like, you know, so many of my friends from high school and whatnot, we were, were, were so committed to the rock and whatnot. And, you know, as soon as they turned 18, they were like, yeah, yep, done with this. Going to college, going to work for my dad, blah, blah, right. blah. Right. You know, and I was like, no, 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 fuck that. Fuck that. I'm going to keep going. Like, I want to do this. Like, it's all, I've never had a plan B. Like, this is all I've ever wanted to do, you know? Right. So it's like, there we are, you know? Yeah. And failure is not. <laughs> the worst thing that could ever happen to somebody you know no. and it's like at least like the what ifs are the worst thing like i have so many of my friends who are like oh man you know i you know i felt i had something to contribute and i just didn't do it and now i'm stuck and now i'm too old now i'm blah 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 excuses excuses and it's like okay well you know you made that choice and there's good things about that too like in some ways like the choices i made like are like a a, a narrative to uh you know what not to do you know it's yeah. like yes to, to the this guy <laughs> look at what he did with his life do the exact opposite because right. clearly <laughs> he did not have good ideas at all you know but on the other hand, like the, I think the worst thing you can do is when you're lying on your deathbed to be like, what if? What if I did this or that? The other thing. And the one thing I will never uh, regret is trying, you know? At least I tried. Yeah. I mean, didn't, 
didn't you kind of wasn't there that kind of attitude of it seems like it's very Chicago centric uh, the Chicago rock scene of that kind of like you know oh this is the I did the wrong thing you know you, to, to laugh at the mistakes and uh, like they like I'm not saying that we haven't internalized our mistakes in a way where you know there are dark scars that we hide deep but at least we're laughing about it you know it's well if you don't laugh you cry right yeah <laughs> yeah there's that and yeah can i ask you a little bit about um uh leaving advertising because of the soul-sucking nature of it but do you <laughs> ever get some of that uh in the in the recording studio business as well like do you find yourself booking bands uh, for your space that are just kind of you, you just know from the beginning it's going to be like a waste of time and you are now stuck with them for a week or a month or something and well the great thing about what I do is that it is sort of it's a, it's you know it's it's um, project based you know so like even if you can't stand someone it's going to be over soon enough right. you know so like that's sort of one of the joys about the business but Certainly, like, I remember in the uh, early aughts, um, there was a stretcher. And this is when, uh, Scott, you'll remember Jeff Sabin was helping out here. And yeah. uh, we just had, we had a string of, like, a year's worth of bands that just, like, couldn't fucking play. Like, drummers that couldn't get through a single take without falling apart. And, like, it ended up the kind of thing where I would have to punch in five times for them to get through the song. And it's just like, you know, you're not creating art at that point. You're like just trying to like, you know, keep your head above water. And then it was actually Elizabeth Elmore's band, The Reputation, came in, like booked a weekend to do a quick demo. And it's like, I remember looking at Jeff, like when they started to play, like we got everything mic'd up and they got ready to play and they started laying it down. I looked at Jeff, I was like, oh yeah, I remember what good bands sound like. Yeah, this is easy when the people can play, you know? Good Lord. And it had been literally a year where it was just like slogging through and it was pain. And you know, it's like, they were good people and maybe the songs were even good, so maybe it was worth pursuing, but it wasn't fun. It wasn't fun from my standpoint. I mean, the funnest thing for me is to just kind of like set stuff up and press play and record and let let the the artists make the magic when when it's like I have to like sort of create something out of nothing you know the the old uh, you know sows you know silk from the sows sows ear then it's a struggle but um, for the most part at this point especially most of the people I work with are old friends acquaintance people I've been making music with for if not years, sometimes decades, you know, and they're respectful and their music is good. And we agree what rock music should sound like. And, you know, I'm very blessed in that way, I think, you know, and I think early in my career, even like I was blessed. I always said that the only reason like I sort of became a thing was because the bands I worked with were great. You know, it's like it's working with the local H's and the fig dishes and the 77 luscious babes bands that could play, drummers that were great, guitar players who understood tone. Like, you know, it makes your job easy. Like, I don't think it was that I was any good. I think I was just recording good bands, you know what I'm well, saying? Well, here's something you do, and and this is, I mean, you know, this basically is like, you know, it's an indie studio, 
right? You're a Chicago indie studio, I and most of the so. stuff that you do, yeah, most of the stuff that you do is indie rock. <laughs> but like, and there's a lot of indie studios in Chicago. But uh, you're there's something about you and the way you do things. Like, you know, you'll do vocal comps. You know, like there, there's a producer in you, and and I know that's a, a dirty word, and most people in Chicago just want to be engineers, but like you care about the mechanics of the song in a way that I don't think everybody does. And I, and I know that, you know, you get a lot of people in here who don't want to hear your opinion, but, but you know, like there's not a lot of people in Chicago that will do vocal comps. You know, yeah. I mean, there's some people that don't do them at all. I mean, I just, for me, like the older I get, like I'm very particularly aware of, of, things being in tune right. and in time and also but not above and beyond that above just sort of like you know um mechanical perfectionist not even perfectionism but just competence but like i also like i like the the special moments like i always like i know sometimes you complain when i comp a vocal you'll be like why did you put that thing that i did once in there and i'm like because it was cool you know and you're right. like no 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 we got to lose that that's not how the song goes, you know, but right. like for me, like it's those three things, like it's got to be in tune, it's got to be in time, but it also has to have some, some emotive feeling to it. And like the, for me, always like the vocal is the thing, like, and I, and I will go the extra mile. And I think that is true. I think a lot of people don't have the patience. I think a lot of people who get in recording don't have the patience to really do what's required in my mind anyway. Like, I think there's certain things that you need to pay very close attention to. You know, I think the vocal, the lead vocal, like, I think the lead vocal, you know, like, a lot of times, like, the first two or three lines I'll spend, like, 20 minutes on. Just because, like, that's what you're hearing. You know, it's like, that's got to be great. If that's not great, then you're not going to get past that. Right. Know? It's the opening of the story. Yeah. If you don't first, get those right. first two or three lines, awesome. And I'm not saying perfect. Like, the thing is, like, you know, at this point... You know, we've got like I started out on analog tape and, you know, now we're at the point where you have the computers, you can fix everything you can make everything perfect. You can make it in tune, blah, blah, blah. I'm not even talking about that. I'm not talking about it being perfect. I'm talking about, about it being awesome. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. those first three lines have to reach into your chest and grab your heart or else nobody's going to keep listening, you know. And what? to me, and then I keep it going. Then after that, I'm like, I still want that. Like, I want the lead vocal. That's the thing I care the most about. Like, I don't want to hear drum fuck-ups, and I don't want to hear anything less than a great lead vocal. Like, those are the two things that mean the most to me. Like, guitars and bass can be sloppy. Everything else can be a little bit off-kilter. But, like, the drums have to be right on. And, and in a, not, not necessarily perfect either. Like, I'm not talking about locked to the grid. Like, I'm not that guy at all. But... I have to hear everything in the drums hitting on time and where it should be, and the lead vocal just has to be spot on, or else we're all wasting our time and we should go home. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But that's that's just the way I feel, and I don't think many people feel that way. I mean, I don't know. I haven't li I haven't worked with many. Like the I've worked with Jeff Murphy, and that's about it. You know, like I really kind of struck out on my own, and I don't know what other people do really. What, and you, I don't really care what other people do that much. I just know what I do. You worked with Jeff? Yeah, the Eisenhowers did our first demo up there with Jeff. Because I loved, you know, I loved Tomorrow Night and all that stuff. And I was like, when the Ikes were ready to do something, 
you know, Mike Riley, Ike Riley, who's still going strong at this point. Yeah. Um, we were uh, ready to do something. I it was my idea to go to short order because Skid. I already knew Skid at that point, and he his band at the time, Batteries Not Included, had done a demo up at Short Order, and Jeff had that 16 track, and it sounded great. And I was right. like, you know, oh, I love Present Tense, I love Tomorrow Night. Um, let's go record with Jeff Murphy, you know, and we did, yeah. and it was it was good, it was fine. But it just didn't have the spark. But that was he was really the last guy I worked with. I was kind of like, you know, I'm a, I'm a wise guy, so I thought I could do better. So, Yeah, well, uh, for people who might not know, uh, uh, short, order, short Order Recorder is uh, in Zion, where we're from. Was in uh, Zion. Was in Zion. God, I keep forgetting. Was in Zion, and that's where, like, we did all of our early recordings, um, and that's where we did demos until we started doing demos with Andy. So it's funny because, like, uh, I I didn't realize you had done something there. And it, it, it's, it's crazy because uh, it seems like everybody I know has done something there. Like, they'd go up to Zion. Wow, sure. How did you find Zion? Well, because there was nothing else going on. Like, no, I mean, very... how did you find it? Did you enjoy <laughs> Zion? Oh, I, I, we, we basically... Well, Mike was living in, uh, in uh, Libertyville, so he was yeah. a Lake County guy to start with, you know. So we kind of knew our way around Lake County, and so it didn't bother me. And at that point, I was like fucking 22. So I was like, I was committed to doing anything that involved the rock. So like driving... You know, there's no good way. Like I, I, I was living in Mount Prospect, where I spent most of my growing up time. There was no good way to get from Mount Prospect to Zion, and it took me an hour or more. And I was happy yeah. to do it. I loved being up there. And like you know, that's, you know, I, I remember asking Jeff about some stuff, and like he turned me on to Mix Magazine, and like really, like, in a lot of ways, he kind of set me on my way. Like what little. You know what little instruction I got, like started with Jeff Murphy, I think. And wow, so that was the spark. Total spark, total what? spark. You oh. know, and I, you know, I, I just was listening to. I was driving around Saturday morning, and they were playing 1979 on XRT, and they played Tomorrow Night. It's still amazing. It sounds great. It's a great yeah. song. So good, and like too late off that record. That whole record, Present Tense, was fucking great. It really was. Amazing. Yeah. You know? Well, those guys like were like way ahead of the indie recording. Yeah, curve yeah. Of they just were doing it. one of the first the, the home studio stuff. Like they were way way ahead of the curve. I remember when we were working there is when like you know Mitch Easter was doing well and whatnot, and Jeff and Mitch were friends, and you know I was talking to Jeff about Mitch and blah blah blah, and you know super cool. What a great time! Like that was a really amazing era back then, you know. And then when Material Issue started to get played on the radio and right. we knew that Jeff did that and you know knew Jim and all those guys and yeah what fun what 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 a wonderful time it was well it wasn't wonderful for me i think i was working at subway at the yeah, time yeah well, you were probably not even yet you were still probably in like in junior high weren't well, you when material issue was doing this the second record uh at short order oh i've I, heard this I story was working at at subway and and, you know, the, the guys would come in, like Teddy would come in or yeah. uh, Zelenka would come in. Zelenka would come in every day to get, like, a, a tuna sandwich or whatever it was. He, he came in one day, and he's like, yeah, oh, you know, get a 12-inch tuna. And I'm like, okay, cool. So I'm like, oh, you're working at, you're recording over at Short Order with 
Jeff, right? He's like, yeah, 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 it's going well. I was like, oh, cool, you know, I got a band, and we record there, too, and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, oh, cool. Uh, can I get cheese on that? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I love that story. Yeah, it's a good story. Oh, my God. So the first thing that was uh, non-demo that we did with you, and I forgot about this because I thought it was the PJ Souls record, but it was, was the No, no Fun EP, right? Yeah. Which uh, I, I know doesn't count, but but I think the No Fun EP is. I mean, I certainly like it better than Ham Fisted, and it, I mean it's it is one of my favorite things that we have done, and and that was like a really freeing experience for me. Like uh, you know, I just loved the way I just love what we were doing and, and the direction that we were we were headed on that record. I remember you were you were nervous about kind of taking responsibility for producing and sort of making the decisions. And yeah. uh but yeah, we rose above it and we had we that was fun. It was a ton of fun. And it yeah. turned out great. It had a great spirit. Well, we started when that came out, we start we got a lot of shit from people like they were saying it didn't sound good, it was too lo-fi, whatever. But yeah, well, I was I wasn't very good, I guess. No, no, no. Well, I mean yeah, no, you probably weren't. But we definitely <laughs> wanted it to sound like that. I, I remember we were finishing uh, Here Comes the Zoo with Jack Douglas in New York, and I had gone to see The Strokes. And I remember going, oh, my God, this is fucking great. And then I got their EP, and I brought it back to my hotel room, and it was, and at, it sounded to my ears at the time super lo-fi. And, uh, and I realized that, we were in trouble because we were just finishing this hi-fi rock record and I realized that that was over, you know, that, like the, that the big studio and spending all this money and, you know, it was just pointless as if it ever, maybe it never had a point in the first place, but at this point it was just ridiculous and we weren't going to get, you know, a song on the radio that was going to make a fucking difference anyway. So, so it was that whole thing. I was like, I don't want to make records like that anymore. And so the first thing we did was the No Fun EP. Um, I think Wes at the time pushed us to make it on Thick Records. And you ended up making a lot of stuff for Thick Records, didn't you? Didn't I did you a few things. Yeah, well, um, they picked up Sullen. And uh, I had started working with the Tossers, who were on Thick before I started working with them. But they did put out one thing that T had done, a solo record that T had did with Oh, me. that's right. But That's right. uh, none, none of the tosser stuff I did, all that was for victory. Right. Um, well, but yeah, yeah, I did the sullen and and like I know, uh, what's his nuts from Thick Zach uh, Thick. was really really excited about getting you guys on there. So, right. I think he thought that uh, he was going to get PJ Souls too. I, I remember. Yeah, I know this, that was kind of dangled to him a little bit, if I recall. I don't remember dangling that, but uh, but I do remember him <laughs> taking out us out to a really nice sushi dinner Ew. for uh remember this uh as at sci cafe and nice. then uh he he took us out when the no fun ep was going to come out and then w afterwards he was took us there again uh but when he took us out for the no fun ep he paid for everything and it was it was great it was awesome and then he took us there again after that and he was kind of like hey you know, I want to put out the next record, which was going to be PJ Souls. And we're like, yeah, we're talking to somebody else. And then 
he he split the check. He made us pay. <laughs> made you go Dutch. Yeah. Oh, Zach. Which he was right to do. And we, uh, it was actually Jeff that could remember. Jeff Saban convinced me to make uh, PJ Souls at the studio because up at, up until that point, I hated to work with the same producer over and over. I'd, I'd like to change it up each record. Right. And, and, and Jeff was like, okay, hey, Scott, what are you going to do? I mean, we were just hanging out. We weren't working on anything. We were just hanging out. And he's like, I think you should do the next record here. I'm like, well, we did the last record here. We need to do it somewhere else to change things up. And Jeff convinced me that, that the, the idea of that we should go deeper and build on what we had done. And that had never occurred to me before. It seems like such an obvious idea, but him pushing for the idea is like, look, let's take what we did last time and go deeper. And, and we did. I mean, maybe aside from the new record, PJ Souls is still my favorite record because we worked our asses off on that thing. PJ, every, there was nothing, like, even though we did it, you know, digitally with a digital recorder, like, it was very much, like, what you hear on the record is not processed in post, you know? It's like, right. almost all of it is like how we recorded it. And we dug deep for that. And I know that, like, you had to have a lot of ideas stored up from working on the records over the years that you've done with, with fucking top-notch guys. You know, I don't know if you've ever, like, like how you feel about that like yeah i mean the guys that you've worked with you know jack douglas fucking uh you know ray thomas baker rtb lord algae even uh even the the producer guy on the first couple records like you steve know, he, steve hagler he, he was in the room for some pretty important stuff you know and 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 twisted a lot of knobs on that stuff as well like you've worked with some heavy hitters so like the thing that was interesting about that record was, like, I remember, like, you know, my technology has always been limited. And when we made that record, like, I sort of sold it on, like, you know, we're going to be able to expand beyond 24 tracks with this Pro Tools interface. And we, I hadn't even tried it yet. Like, right. And uh, it was like, we didn't even, like, get into that until we started mixing. <laughs> I was like, yeah, this is, it's going to work. Just trust me on this. It'll be fine. But the one thing I said, like, you know, because... Earlier on, like when people would say, when I was working on a 16-track recorder, they'd be like, well, we want to do this, that, and the other thing. And a lot of time you'd have to be like, dude, you know, hey, we're, this is what we have. This is our capabilities. So you got to kind of adjust your whatever. But I remember when we started PJ Solos, I was like, no matter what Scott wants to try, I'm not going to say no. Like, I'm not going to, like, I'm going to figure out a way without even saying anything to technically make it happen, even though it might not be convenient or easy for me. You know what I'm saying? Right. Right. Like you a lot of very... like, you know how we were using a lot of uh, a lot of the vocals we were using room room mics on and whatnot. Yes. Yeah. So on the, the system that I was using at the time, there was no way to group that. I couldn't make those couple tracks like this behave the same way. So when mm -hmm. I was comping vocals, I had to literally, like, comp the one vocal track and then, like, copy the fucking room mic over. It was such a pain in the ass. You were it's, very eager to please. Yeah, uh, it was a drag. But I was like, you know, I'm not going to say no. This is what we want to do. In for penny, in for pound, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly don't think I could make another record like that. I mean, I, I love... It was tedious. It was tedious, but it was brilliant, you know? Yeah. Like, and some of the, some of the sort of experiments that worked... 
that we came across. Like, remember uh, feeding the bass through Sean's uh, Moog pedal thing? And, like, just you were playing with the faders, and we just took the same track and put it through three ways and then oh, right. pan, panned it left, right, and center. And the beginning it, of That's What They All Say. Yeah, and what that happened, the way it worked, like the way the phase shifting with all that was, what what happened was it created this 3D sweeping effect like that I don't even know how we could have right. ever done it again. Like it was really a one-of-a-kind thing. And we never would have done it if we weren't just literally fucking around, you know? Yeah, I have no idea how we did half of the stuff on the record. And there's a real... Uh, it's a really good headphone record because it's, it's kind of like, it's like a hand-painted, very handcrafted type of record, you know? Yeah, it totally. was not m made for the radio, and I think the label at the time was like, what the fuck are we going to do with this? Right. And but, There were a couple of poppy songs, but I like... I sure, know, but they sounded weird. Like, yeah. you know, they thought that California Songs was a good pop song, but they, they hated the... Uh, the uh, the, the uh, Beach Boys yeah, the thing that we thing. put on the bass. Yeah. yeah. They were like, why does it have to sound like this? It's like, well, it's called that's, California that's Songs, and we want it to sound like the Beach Boys, uh, you know, the, the bass part at okay. the beginning of, uh, what, what, what's the one? The Good Vibrations. We want it to yeah. sound like Good Vibrations. Well, we don't get it, you know. Yeah. Oh, well. yeah. Plus, I mean, those, I mean... The, when we started making that record, the initial plan, I don't know if you recall this or not, was to have Nick Didia mix it. Like, I was never supposed to mix that record. Yeah, and like, what some, happened? I don't know. Like, somehow <laughs> I got saddled with it at the end. Yeah, I, I feel like, bad. I, I feel like it took a couple of years off your life with that thing. It did. Like, all, all the local rage records take a couple of But they're the, they're the bad <laughs> years. Like Dennis Leary says, they're the diaper years. So <laughs> I'm going to be glad to be rid of those. But yeah, every, every time I finish, like, I go through postpartum depression when I finish a local rage record. Like, I literally, like, sort of, like, lay on the couch for a month afterwards. You know, it's, it's, well, it's, it's, it's traumatic. Well, yeah, I mean, you decided not to do Hallelujah, I'm a Bum pretty early on. I mean, that was the first time in a long time that we'd done demos. So, like, every song on Hallelujah, I'm a Bum has a demo that was recorded here. But when it but, came time to actually record it, you're like, I, I don't want to do this. No, well, it wasn't that I didn't want to do it. I just felt like I was failing you guys. That's what I thought it was. Like, I was like, and especially once we did the demos, like, I thought, like, Cold Manor and... Um, was the other one that I really thought was great? Um, Feet of Fever. There's a mm. couple songs on there that I thought like sounded like radio songs, and I was like, okay, you know, nobody gives a shit about Andy Gerber at Million Studios in Chicago, like, and that's half of playing the game is like, you know, it's people have to get excited about something dumb. They have to hitch their wagon to something that they understand, which, you know, for the vast amount of Americans is, you know, a pretty low common denominator. So it's like, my thought was like, let's, this stuff is great. Let's get this to somebody who can do something with it. Somebody that somebody will care about. Like in retrospect, like when you did that shit with Ken Andrews, um, that was the guy I was thinking about. Like I was thinking right. about somebody like that or like, you know, obviously, um, you know, what's his nuts from Queens of the Stone Age. You had a relationship with, uh, Josh. Josh, yeah. Like, if Josh would have picked up on that, or if Ken would have picked up on that, or somebody buzzy, or, like, just more connected to the industry. Like, I felt like that record had potential beyond just being another great Local H record. Um, 
that's what I was pushing for more. Like, I kind of feel like... Yeah, but I didn't want to do that. No, you didn't. you didn't. I wanted to make a... You know, it was more about the concept than it was about the songs. And, you know, I wanted right. to make... So we ended up making the record with Sanford Parker. And, uh, you know, that was... The idea there was, like, let's... Because to me, the most interesting thing that was happening in Chicago at that time was the, the, metal indie, scene. the indie metal scene. Right, exactly. I and had I, high hopes for that on paper. Like, when you told me that's what you're doing, I was like, that sounds perfect. But, like, the results I just... I, I wasn't as happy with. Just because I felt like I knew that that record could have been a little more something. And it's not that it's a bad record by any means, but I just... I don't know. It, for me, it fell a little short of the mark. But, like, I'm probably the only person on the planet that even knows what I'm talking about. Well, that. we bit it off a little bit more than we could chew. I mean, that, that wasn't anybody's fault but mine. I mean, yeah. I, I, I was thinking big with that record, and nobody was going to tell me different. You know, that was, I, w I wanted to go as big as possible. And it's, you know, it's a great record. It's okay. It really is. Like, it's, you know... The one thing that I find interesting is, like, it doesn't seem to have survived the set list much. Like, when you guys, when you did the Lincoln Hall thing and you played Cold Manor, I right. was psyched. I was so excited. Yeah. Because I was like, that doesn't get taken out of the garage very often, you know? Yeah, it doesn't. And I don't know if that's Ryan's fault or my fault. It's probably my fault. I mean, that, most of those songs were kind of like, there's a lot of songs on there that were demoed and written at my house right you know yeah. so so there's a lot of like low singing there's a mm -hmm. lot of things on that record that don't uh really translate to the live setting i mean that doesn't mean the songs aren't good it just means that you just can't belt it you out like you can like out. hey killer songs or something like sure that. sure i get it speaking of hey killer you you did that too <laughs> hey killer hey killer that's right. That was uh that was a real breath of fresh air. Like I don't think we had had that much fun making a local H record in a long time. It had been a while and, and that's when we got we got Ryan in and everybody knows Ryan's a lot of fun. I mean, I remember you were like, "Wow, it's weird to have somebody else in the studio." And Ryan yeah, would go like, out and It used to be like, you know, for so many of those records, like Brian would be in town for a week and do his bits, and then it was me and you staring at each other for the duration, you know, which was fine. But like yeah. it was nice to it was nice to have somebody who was actually invested and excited and involved, you know. It was like even if he didn't contribute much when he was here, like at least he was here, you know. I like said <laughs> we could send him out for tacos and stuff, you know. Yeah, uh -oh. he would go out and get tacos for us. That was good. You need a taco guy. I mean, you know, that's nobody's fault. It's just like, you know, you got the the new guy coming in and he injects some energy into the, the process. Yeah, yeah. Made, like Richie know. Blackmore used to always like to change out members in Rainbow because he was like new blood, new blood. It's like a vampire. You need new blood. Yeah, keeps, I, keeps I, don't want you, I don't want you to compare me to Richie Blackmore. Please don't. No, I'm just saying. Don't, it's don't a philosophy that. he had. Who was your favorite band growing up? I mean, what, 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 like, just lit a fire under your ass that made you want to do this forever? Kiss, for starters, I would say. Seriously? Probably, yeah. <laughs> Gabe, I mean, you call him bullshit first, on for this? First, the, the band that first put it in my brain that I should be a rock star was Kiss, I would say so. Besides Which, Kiss, there's got to be somebody. Well, quick, quickly got supplanted with um, Rush, 
Okay. Uh, you know, and I, mean, I love, like, growing up and listening to the radio, I loved, like, Zeppelin and Queen and stuff. But they didn't make me feel like I could be them. Like, that's the thing about those guys. Like those. You know, so you thought the, you could be Kiss? I thought I could be Kiss, yeah. I don't know. They're kind of punky the in their own way. They were self-made. Like, they fucking, nobody told them what to do. They figured that shit out on their own. I don't yeah, know. I don't like, know. it seemed Somebody easier to. tell them what to do. It seemed easier to, you know, slap makeup on your face and play three-chord boogie-woogie songs than, like, be Queen. Yeah. Or, or Zeppelin. <laughs> I definitely see that. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> but then, yeah, like, but then quickly, you know, Rush was a big one when I was young. Like, I, I went through a big phase where, like, if it wasn't complicated, it wasn't didn't seem worth it to me. Mm-hmm. Which I don't know what that was all about. But you when know, did all you grow through that, that also. Well, probably never really. But I love Cheap Trick all along, and I always thought of Cheap Trick and the Cars as being sort of progressive in their own ways because of the way they used interesting dynamics and guitar parts and stuff, even if they weren't like. You know Steve Howe doing these amazing technic- technical things on the guitar that you couldn't do. Like Rick Nielsen and the dude from the Cars and whatnot, they came up with parts that were interesting. You know, and that always, you know, that's I think, where, I think that's where I got interested in producing and stuff like that. Like I would, you know, I would always hear the sort of little things that were going on in the background, and that was to me what was interesting more than like what was front and center. You know what I'm saying? Right. It was musical and not like. A wank fest. Yeah, exactly right. Right, right. Well, you had, uh, what was that like period where you're doing a lot of uh, demos with Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick? That lasted a while, didn't it? That was, yeah, it was a while. They were doing the Rockford record, and it was about a year. He came in like three or four times, and it was always like three or four days at a crack. And uh, Dave Fry was managing him at the time and wanted to sort of motivate him to be productive and busy. So, like, um, we had just done PJ Souls, I think, and, you know, Rick had heard that and thought it was No cool. way. Yeah, that's what it was. Dave Fry gave, he was like, hey, you should <laughs> oh, work with this guy. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it so Rick blew came... blew my mind. Yeah, so Rick came down, and, like, you know, the, the first time, like, him... First two times, Dave came with him, and the first time they stayed at the, uh, you know, the Rock and Roll Comfort Inn or whatever on Diversity... Uh-huh. And then the third time he stayed with his son, Aaron, up in, like, Lincoln Square. And then, like, by the end, he was like, do you mind if I just crash on the couch here? I was like, I don't, if you don't care, I don't care. Nice. Of course not. Nice. So, yeah, so Rick was just, like, you know, sleeping on my couch up back here. What was that like to work with him? Like, because, you know, worshipping Cheap Trick. Like, yeah, every time I'm around him, it doesn't matter how nice he is to me. I'm scared as fuck, you know. Yeah, it was the first time I worked with him. I remember the the first night I, I couldn't sleep. Like the night before, like I literally did the first session on zero sleep because I like laid down at one in the morning or something and I couldn't fall asleep. So I had to record him uh, on no sleep. Um, but he was like, he showed up. He was kind of nervous too. Like it was funny. Like we kind of had we had to spar around each other a little bit and figured out that we both weren't full of shit. And then we just got off like we got off like gangbusters, you know, and um, he trusted me and uh, and it was so much fun to kind of just watch his mind work. And, you know, yeah. he had his his kids played drums and did the vocals. They came in like he would kind of like we'd put down a click track and he'd do the bass and the guitars and have it pretty well fleshed out before Z- uh, Dax and uh, Miles would show up. And um, then they would show up and he would coach them through. And it was really cute to see Rick, like, sort of both 
expecting productive results from his children and also like, you know, being a parent, you know, it was fun to watch him, watch him sort of deal with his children and watch his children. Cause like miles, I knew a little bit, uh, before he came down here and did that. So it was like, you know, it was interesting to sort of then like back up our relationship to all of a sudden dad's in the room, you know, and Dax, I had never met before. And, it was cool. And, you know, he, Rick was great. He was, it was a period of time when he was sober because Dave was pushing that. And he was not happy about it mm-hmm. by any means. Like, you know, we would joke about it. Like one time when he was leaving, like he had some near beers in the fridge and he was like, you know, you want your near beers? I was like, oh, you know what, Rick? I prefer my beer to actually have alcohol. And he's like, yeah. I was like, yeah, it's great when you're straight, right? He's like, yeah, it's fucking great. <laughs> Fuck you, you know, basically. But, uh, you know, there were times like, you know, when we were finished working and when Dave stopped hanging around, Rick, the first time he was like, we're not going to work nearly as hard now that Dave is not here. Right. You know? We're going to be having fun, you know. And I think he really relished getting out of Rockford and coming down here. He's hanging out in Chicago. He could call Peace and have him deliver shit. And, you know, there was we would just, after we were done working on shit, we would hang out on the back couch. And he had his, he loved his Apple laptop and he had like everything. Oh, yeah. He's totally into Apple stuff. Oh, my God. He had like spreadsheets of every guitar he'd ever bought. And it was like an Excel spreadsheet. And it was like what it was, what year it was, the make it was, what he paid for it, what the issues were. Um, if it had been appraised recently, what it was appraised for, and blah, blah, blah. And he had from everything he'd ever bought since he was a kid. So we, like, were going through this. I mean, he was, like, telling me, like, you know, his insurance company, like, basically were, like, we can't continue your policy unless you get, like, a fireproof, waterproof, temperature-proof uh, vault for these five guitars. These five Les Pauls is basically what they were. They uh-huh. were, like, you know, 57, 58 bursts. And he's like, basically, like, if I didn't do that, I, you know, my insurance policy for my collection so like would have been ridiculous. A gun safe for his guitars. Basically, and even way more intense. It was like a humidor slash gun safe, like crazy shit. And, you know, he would pull up pictures of, like, you know, him hanging out with John Lennon on the, you know, the double fantasy sessions yeah. when they did Cold Turkey and stuff. Right. Jack Douglas brought him into that. Yep, yep. And all that stuff, it was crazy. Like, the shit that he had, like, pictures of his parents. He had a picture of, like, him and his parents getting into an airplane when Rick was, he was, like, a child. He was, like, couldn't have been older than seven or eight. And they're, like, getting on, getting into an airplane on, you know, in Rockford to go fly to a music show or something. Like, his folks did pretty well. I think the, the Nielsen, the Nielsen Music store in Rockford I think was a very successful store in the 40s and 50s and 60s or whenever he was doing it I didn't know and that they were yeah and I think he they were upper middle class like they were very successful for for Rockford you know um, so he was a rich kid you know mm-hmm. I know how much you love rich kids oh you know I love them you Thank love you. the rich kids you had uh, Michael Chapman set up camp here for a second there too yeah, yeah, Mike Chapman was great. Like, you know, a, a he, huge... He did the, the like, Blondie producer. He wrote sweet songs. Well, for me... For people like, that don't know. One of the things, like, when you talk about, like, what was seminal for me getting interested, like, if I predated Kiss, like, because Kiss I got interested in junior high, but when I was in fourth grade, Little Willie was on the radio. And, yeah. like, Ballroom Blitz. <laughs> and I thought that was the greatest stuff. Like, I thought that was so cool. I thought it was, like, Little Willie, I thought it was the greatest song ever. 
People and in Chicago have like a real connection to ballroom blitz. It's uh, sweet. Like for some reason, Chicagoans love sweet and they yeah. love UFO. And that's like we're the only people in the entire planet who love sweet and UFO. Like UFO is nobody outside of Chicago. But in Chicago, they're one of the biggest rock stars. Like you talk to Jeff Pizzotti, Mike, uh, John Haggerty, like anybody. Like they're like, oh, yeah, what's your favorite band? Oh, well, UFO, of course, you know. Yeah. And uh, outside of Chicago, like they just don't get it. <laughs> Are we wrong? I don't know. I love UFO. I love Sweet. So yeah, working with Mike was great. Like um, he was interested in this band, girl band from Glenview, friends of, ours, friends, friends of yours. And yeah. and the dad called me and said, "Yeah, I'm friends with Scott Lucas and this guy Michael Chapman." Is producing my my daughter's band. We need a studio, and I called you. You like zoinks, Michael Chapman. I was Chapman. like, dude, call this guy, whoever the fuck this guy is, call him and tell him, get Mike Chapman in my studio, too sweet because like you know, make it happen, make it happen, Scott. And it happened, and it was great. It was so cool. Like so, anyway, yeah, Mike Chapman, like like the guy wrote Little Willie. He wrote Ballroom Blitz. He wrote Love Is a Battlefield. He wrote. Uh, hey, Mickey, you're so fine. Well, he wrote the best uh, Huey Lewis song. No, you're thinking of uh, Mutt Lang. No. Do you believe in love? Do you believe in love? Is that what you're talking about? No. Do you believe in love? That's Mutt Lang. No, no, it's Heart and Soul. Heart and Soul. He wrote Heart and Soul. Chapman that wrote is- Heart and Soul? Chapman wrote Heart and Soul, and that I is the that. best. Are you writing that down, Gabe? Is that, is that no, but I'm thinking, I'm thinking The Power of Love. That has a song that has a chorus at the end. The power of Love. <laughs> that's saving the chorus to the end in that song. <laughs> uh, he produced Get the Knack, right? He produced Get the Knack, absolutely. God damn. That's... Like this, his credits are shocking. Yeah. Like the Blondie stuff, the Get the Knack, um, the, the Sweet stuff. The Susie Quattro stuff, like Pat Benatar, um, it's just shocking. Like, he told me that, like, the Blondie Greatest Hits sells, like, a million copies every year and has since it came out. And, like, his producer royalties up from that alone, like, like basically that's, you know, his bread and butter. Wow. And he's still pretty... uh uh, let's say rock and roll, laid back. What, what would you call him? Like Mike is an enthusiast. Flamboyant. Like, he's, he's no, I wouldn't call him flamboyant. He's he's enthusiastic. Like he loves music. Like he gets excited. He's like like I was. I've been a jaded fuck probably as long as you've known me, Scott. Right? Would you say that's a yes, fair assessment? I would say you're probably the most jaded. I mean, we could do an hour on on the the grumpiness of Andy Gerber. Yes. Alone. But one one of the things that I've always appreciated about you is your sort of enthusiasm for music. Like you will get excited about a guitar part or a sound or a song or whatever. Like you will get genuinely excited. And to me, like watching that, like it's it's very um, sort of uh, life affirming, and and I, I enjoy seeing it because it reminds me how I should be. And I need to be more. And Chapman's that way always. Like, Chapman's, like, super excited. Like, he gets so excited. Yeah. You know, and I, that's, that's like, that is a, uh, a rare quality. And it's a, a quality that should be valued more, I think, too. Like, well, you, you can know. hear that in his songs, you know? You yeah. can hear that in the way he writes songs. I mean, you know, 
are you ready, Steve? I mean, just that whole thing. Not that he came up with that part, but just, just the sense. I think he of- did. I think he did. I think that was the thing where he's like, let's the the public doesn't know the band, so let's do this thing where we have you introduce the band, like dumb stuff like that. Like he comes, he's the he's the king of like that kind of dumb stuff. Yeah, and he just gets so excited. Like he he gets so excited, and that's at the end of the day, like that's what. Like I've always said, like it's not my my line by any means, but like the worst thing you can do in rock and roll is be boring. Like mm-hmm. that's the worst crime you can commit is to be boring. It should have that sort of effervesc- effervescence. Like it should have that excitement, that that quality, that just the liveliness. Like there should be a vibrancy to to your stuff because that's what makes it interesting to listen to again and again. You know, like if it's not that, like I remember. Like when the the demo that we did with the Ikes up at Short Order, like it was, you know, Jeff did a great job and we did the best we could do being an inexperienced band. But like when you listen back to it, it was very lifeless. Like there was no pizzazz to it. It was just a, it was, it was a solid sort of, um, you know, reading of a band doing the best they could at the time. But there was no excitement to it. It was nothing that you would want to listen to again. You know right. Well, that's probably because you guys were, you know, new to the studio. But it's also right. because well, Jeff isn't going to give his two cents unless he knows you for a while. And even when you ask him, he's not going to give. I mean, he didn't give us his two cents until like after our fourth session with him or something like that. But what I'm saying, though, that's what like a record like the records that you wear out as a kid, the records that I kept listening to over and over and over. There was something in there. There was something in those recordings that like. You can't define. You can't right. put your finger on it. There's something, just that life force. Like it's you know it it is. It's like a Zen thing or whatever you want to call it. But like you know, and that's like more and more. The more I do the recording, like you know, like I said, I want it to be in in pitch and in time. But I also want it to have that quality, that that special something that like that those moments like that tug at your heart that like move you you know like to bring a tear to your eye when you hear the end of a song and you realize you're a little bit choked up you know yeah or like you know when like when when uh daryl hall hits that note you know she's gone like she's gone right like that like that's a moment that like you know you can't pitch correct that you can't like beat detect that like that's like emotion and that's what music really like the Whenever you see Iggy interviewed, like he always says, like when he came down to Chicago and learned from the blues guys, the one thing he always says is like, my takeaway from that, one guy said to me, is like, whenever you're playing something, play it like you mean it. You got to play it like you mean it. And like, you know, that's that's a very easy thing to sort of toss off and say, yeah, yeah, play it like you mean it. Like if you if you really get your head around what that means and as a musician, like, if you're playing in a cover band or you're doing whatever, like, you know, Scott, you do, like, you've got, like, three or four different outlets for your creativity that you're doing. Like, think about every note that you do. And if you're a performing musician, you really should think about this. Like, every note that you play should be played like you fucking mean it. You shouldn't just be, like, putting your fingers in the spot that you need to or singing the note that you need to. It should be sort of sent off into the universe with some fucking style and some pizzazz, because otherwise, why bother? You know what right. I'm saying? I mean, it, you talk about uh, like a sense of fun being key to, to music, right? But I mean, I think a sense of conviction is yeah, equally I don't think it, 
if not more it's, important. I don't think it's necessary. I mean, fun is great, but it's, it's all the same thing. It's all the same vibe. You know what I'm saying? It's right. a sense of, sense of authenticity, a sense of right. commitment, a sense of like investment. Right. And, and, and I think too often these days you get people like, oh, what, it's, it's not authentic unless it's dudes playing guitar. It's like, that's not what I mean. You know, it's just like just this idea that you actually fucking mean this. And you mean it. Yeah. And, and, and you know, the, also, like being aware that if you don't, you're wasting everybody's time. You're wasting people that have uh, they have put their faith in you by listening to your record. And and if you're wasting their fucking time, the short time that by they have on this in. planet, yeah, you're doing them a disservice more than you're doing yourself a disservice. And see, and that all sound, sounds like you know that whole non-selling out thing. I'm so tired of this thing that goes on now where people are like, oh, that's cute that you guys believed in, you know, don't sell out. That, that's really nice. And, you know, it's like, fuck you. I mean, it means something, you know, it really I think does. Even, I think above and beyond even selling out, like I, I, I'm just talking about like when you're creating the note, when you're creating that musical moment. Yep. Like if you're thinking about what you're going to have for dinner that night or thinking yeah. about what the TV show you're going to be watching. And, right. and I struggle with that with like a lot of like, you know, there's some people in bands that I work with, like, you know, if you play like a teacher, like that's the one thing it's like you play like your mind's on something else. Like you can't do that and expect anybody else to give a shit about it. Like you have to when you're singing that part or playing that part. And that's one thing that I've believe in more firmly the older and older I get like you have to be channeling the universe in that moment and making it come out of your guitar or whatever you're doing or your voice and if you're thinking about you know what you're going to have for dinner or what tv show you're going to be watching later then like you've just wasted everybody's time right you might as well not be doing this at all you know right and like you know what's the point you know Right. You got to put that magic. You got to put that spin on the ball, you know? Yeah. Like, Gabe, you know, bowling, it's a bowling thing. You know, that spin, <laughs> if you don't get the right fucking spin on it, you might as well not throw it down the alley, right? Were you, were you at some of those bowling uh, Tuesday night sessions we did back in the day? Andy? I was I was at a couple. I was at a couple. I remember uh, uh, Jim, uh, Nina's Nina's brother, being... Pretty, pretty fearsome in the lanes. <laughs> Was he a good bowler? He's Is he a good bowler? bowler? He chucked. He, he he threw the ball with great, great conviction and anger, which maybe uh, said something about what was driving him. Yeah. You, you see what you see what Andy's done, Ben. He 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 brought Gabe into the conversation, and if you want to bring Gabe into the conversation, you talk about bowling. You talk about bowling. You talk well, about I, bowling. I remember. I remember better bowling than burritos. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, for for uh, which one was it? Uh, PJ Souls. I, I think I came up and Scott invited me to come watch a session or two uh, when you guys were recording. And I get there and I had a friend with me and, and Scott's like, Gabe, all right, let's do this backup vocal. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? He goes, no, we're going to do some backup vocals. And, and I remember here I am. This is my first real time just, just hanging out with the guys when they're actually recording the record in, in the hometown. And right. Andy's, Andy's like, all right, Gabe, give it your all, give it your best, you know, let me hear it, let me hear it, you know. And I'm like, well, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, I'm not a singer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the bathroom just singing these, you know, Everyone Alive backups. And, you know, I could tell that you were for real, you know, you weren't just joking around recording the guys, you you know, because I didn't know, you know, who you were a whole lot, but 
I just know that you were very passionate and you made me do the best I could at that time. And, and I, you know, I wanted to ask you, like, did you ever bring something to the table on, on a song or two that maybe you suggested to Scott or, or Brian or Ryan to, to say, maybe you should try this and, and it stuck? Like, like one of these songs has your stamp on it. What, what would you say? I, yeah, I feel like, um, I mean, my, my, my attitude about producing is I'll bring as much or as little as, as, as you need or you want. Like, and like Scott, you know, sometimes, most of the time Scott knows what he wants, but sometimes like, I, I feel like I've, I've dragged a few things out of the ditch. Um, right. Yes, you have. For sure. And like, you know, as far as which I feel like on, uh, I feel like I had a lot to do with Hey Killer. I feel like if I had a real stamp on that record or on any of the records, I think Hey Killer, I had a lot of input on that record, I think. Well, you um, came to rehearsals when we were like, when we were. Which I always like to do. Yeah. But yeah, we did that for that for sure. There's well, a couple, there... tu- couple tunes on the last record. I know Scott was about to give up on a song or two. I was um, about to give up on Demon Dreams. Well, you um, were about to give up on California songs at one point. Remember when I changed the drum part? Like, you had decided, oh, my God, Brian played the wrong drum part. And you were like, it's not going to go on the record like this. It's not going to happen. I was like, okay, give me an hour. And, like, I literally, like, moved the kick drum beat around. Oh, and then really? And you came back, and you were like, dude, okay, okay, okay. That's, it's, back, it's back on the record. That's my particular <laughs> brand of sickness. It's just, like, I will obsess over something. And then years later, I'm like, what? I mean, I don't even remember what you're talking about. Uh-huh. No, and, true. like, Gabe is constantly like, how do you remember stuff? It's like, I remember stuff that I want to, I think. Uh, right. But... But on Demon Dreams, I was totally like, this song is not good. It's not going to happen. It's like, it, it could have been good. And Andy would not take no for an answer. Like, he was like, get in there. Come on, come on. Like, and you more. were, the thing was, is you were 90% there. And like, you were like, you're like that swimmer who's about to drown. You're like, I can't make it to the other side. I'm just, yeah. I'd rather just drown. Yeah. And, I, I, and you were like the swimming coach. Who I was, was like, like, you can make it. God you can damn make it. it. And, and if you don't think you can make it and you threw me a bottle of whiskey, you're the kind of swimming coach that will throw a swimmer a bottle of whiskey and say, come on over. Like we drank an entire bottle of whiskey to finish that song. Just that one song. I just that, that one song. Remember? That might be true. I was absolutely hammered by the end of the, of that but we that got session. it though we got it that's the thing it's like we but totally by whatever means necessary and people dig that song uh and i dig that song it's great i think you had just lost sight you'd given up like you just you couldn't see that it was gonna happen and that it was close you were so close that was the thing that was frustrating it just wasn't uh, it just wasn't happening for me like it, it, you know there's a certain point in my vocal range where I know I can hit it and I and I got it and that was just too low or or something it just wasn't where I needed it to be and I just felt stupid and like an idiot and uh you knew how to you know you got me drunk and we got yeah we tied you with alcohol which is usually you know that's that's a good good course of action for most things really (laughs) (laughs) in this world well, but yeah, like okay. um, it's interesting because like there's been some stuff where I've had zero input on local age stuff, and there's been some stuff where I've had more stuff. And I think, I mean, I think with my production style, like I don't try and I don't think I have a sound per se. Like I don't know, Scott, 
Scott might have a little more of a of an objective perspective. Like I don't think, like you know, some people like you hear it and you kind of you can tell that it's them or they do well, certain things. But like I feel like I just try and make the band sound as good as they possibly can. Like that's what I'm going for, and make sure it has, like I said, some liveliness. Like I. I feel like there's some producers who like, you know, yeah, everything's perfect. It's really tucked in. It sounds great. But is there that life force lurking in the tracks? And sometimes the answer is no. And like, that's the one thing that I try and do is make sure that there's life force in the tracks. You know, but. Well, I mean, like, what you, like you've got a new record that you just finished with your band, Avondale Ramblers. And like when I was listening to that, it's kind of like I can hear your style and your style is you're very straight ahead and there's a no-nonsense thing going. But the thing is, everything is, it's not, it's very crisp, but it's not, uh, it's not sterile. It's not like everything's perfect. Like, basically everything that you've said for the last hour is how that record sounds. Like, you, you, you say you don't have a style, but you're very good at articulating what your style is. So um, maybe you're just not aware that you're being articulate or I, I don't think it's a stamp though you know what I'm saying it's like you know when you hear an Albini record like you know it's an Albini record nine yeah. times out of ten you know I don't think like if you hear a record that I did you won't be like oh that sound what is that sound you know you'll just be like you'll either like the the artist or you won't like right. I think. But that's my thing like you know I don't think a Tossers record sounds like a Local H record but like the integrity is the same you know what I'm saying yes I do know what you're saying I absolutely know what you're saying and I know the approach. And, but, but as far as the Albini uh, people, what it sounds like, that might not be so true either because there are songs on the new record that you recorded by yourself. And like, what, maybe seven songs on the new record were recorded with Albini. And right. then the rest were uh, done here, completely done here and not with anybody else. And there are songs that, like, somebody just the other day was talking about uh, Winter Western because uh, we just released a video for it, and they were, like, going, yeah, you can totally hear the Albini sound on this song. <laughs> and he had nothing to do with it. <laughs> and that was one of the songs that he had nothing to do with, you know? So it's like people will hear what they want to hear. Totally, yeah. Oh, people. That rankled you a little, right? No, I mean, no. I mean, the thing is... I want Local H to exist on a bigger playing field. So, like, I understand, like, you know, bringing in a Steve to do stuff. And, like, also, like, you know, I know that he's a hero of yours. And I think, you know, I think there's a validity in your approach and his approach that made some sense. What I, I mean, my original re vision for that record was to have it more be like an A side and a B side, like the Andy side and the Steve side. Mm -hmm. Like, have you guys finished stuff with Steve? You know what I'm saying? Right, yes. As opposed to have him just sort of doing the basic tracks and then me doing my usual bit over the top of it. Right. Um, I thought that, my, originally that's what I thought that record was going to be more like, and I was excited about that idea. But, you know, I also think that what it came to is great too. You know, like I thought... You know, it was it was really fun to, you know, take these tracks that you guys had done over there with his approach 
and then kind of come back here and finesse them. And then, right. like, you know, to have Jay sort of figure right. it all out after the fact, I think. Between was, you, was really Jay, great. and everybody else, it, and Steve, it became like more of a, a stew. Like, like yeah. originally, the idea was that you would be able to hear things would stick out, and you'd be like, oh, that was done there, that was done there, and we wanted... And remember, also, you wanted to do, like, acoustic, like, sort of live acoustic stuff. Like, it was going to be like Zeppelin Three, like, where it was like, you know, every song was, like, a completely different setup, practically, you know what I'm saying? Right. That yeah. was the original intent for that, that record, was. which yeah. could have been interesting, and I don't think that's how <laughs> that record ended up, but I think that where it ended up is a great place, too. Well, you know? Andy, what had happened was we did those uh, first four songs and and we did them here and it was like Valley of Snakes and it was Hold That Thought and it was, even though we ended up re-recording Hold That Thought at Albini's place, but it was Winter Western. And, but the, the songs were so good, I was like, all right, we I don't want to make this record uh, a, a fractured type of record i mean i it odds was like odds. yeah i don't know what i'm trying to say but but i knew we were at such a point where i was like oh my god we're like really gonna do something here it's not gonna be like uh a, a an off record i mean this was definitely an a record you know yeah, yeah. Um, oh yeah and i love the b records but i knew this was an a record so at that point i was like all right we've got to be a game every single song. And that's kind of when my attitude changed. But then the record turned into something else. And and uh, and I love it for that. I mean, yeah, it's, I, it's, it's, it's my the, favorite record. I mean, I think maybe, the, la the last two records, I think, have been great. Like, I really think, like, you know, I think having Ryan some fresh blood, like, has brought up a, a new sense of urgency to your songwriting. I think um, just the spunk of him, like just, you know, his his sort of life force on the drums comes through on the tracks. I think that's yeah. palpable. You know, I think that's palpable. Um, and, uh, you know, you just like you're sort of relentless, not giving up and, you know, just wanting to push the envelope and just keep exploring like sort of fearlessness. You know, I love that quality of, you know, your sort of artistic bent like is sort of fearless like you know i remember in the in the rush documentary gene simmons says that about rush he's like you know what do you say about rush they're fearless they'll start out a song they don't know where the hell it's going they don't care they're not right. worried about it they're going to do what they're going to do and like i feel like local h sort of has that quality as well like you know you're not you don't put yourself in a box you're not like oh well this isn't what local h does you know it's like right. that you know you've had no problem incorporating you know some edm stuff you know, around the time of, of no fun and whatnot. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> right. you know, whatever your sort of your, your latest interests, like, I think it's an admirable quality to sort of, and, you know, it's an admirable artistic quality to, to, to be, to, to not put yourself in a box, to not be ACDC, not make the same record over and over. You know, it's like, you know, Billy Corgan, like him or hate him. Like I've never been a big fan, but I'll credit him for, he, I mean, he could have cranked out whatever that record is that everybody liked. He could have just done a carbon copy of that till this day, but he never did that to his credit. Yeah. Like yeah, he, yeah. he said, "No, I'm gonna fuck around. I'm gonna, I'm, I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to change my name. I want to do dumb stuff. I want to play with other people." Like the sort of re relentless um, exploration, I think, is important as an artist. Like Neil Youngish, you know, 
Like, you know, Neil Young is never sort of settled. Like, he's never allowed himself to be fixed. You know, he's never put himself in the kiln and gotten baked to that point where, like, you know, it's a dumb thing. This is what I do. Neil Young's never gotten baked? Is that what you're no, saying? I, I know. I walked into that, and I was mixing my metaphors, and I was trying to sort of, you know, straddle the lines there. Um, but it's never fixed, is what I'm saying. Like, Neil Young will go to his grave, like, doing something different, you know? Yeah. 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 He's not afraid to fall on his ass. Which no, is... not at all, which I think every artist should have. Like, I think... You know, when Rogers Waters talked about disbanding Pink Floyd because it became an excuse for printing money, like, you know, I think he was on to something there. Yep. He was like, absolutely. Know, he, was, he was like, you know, yeah, like we could certainly, certainly keep this fucking gravy train rolling. But what's the point? You know, what's the real meaning behind it? And I think as an artist, you know, the entire point is to change, you know, like, you know, you just got to keep changing or right. keep, keep, keep grasping. Like, you don't, even if you don't change, like you have to, I think, be moving towards something. You know what I'm saying? Right. And it's also easier to do that when uh, you don't have a money train <laughs> and yeah, it's like, and well, nobody's yes. watching. When nobody's expecting, yeah. when nobody's, when nobody's tapping, tapping their watch and like expecting right. you to turn in the latest uh, it's, installment. It's it's easy for us to do that in the dark, like cockroaches. But that's actually a great thing. You know, I think about it like yeah. I think about my career. Like it, I certainly harbored ambitions of, you know, I mean, all I really wanted to do, I wanted to be like Jeff or Mitch or somebody where I like had enough of a status where people who were serious about making music and putting out records would come and make records. Do you feel like that? And I, I feel like I succeeded in that to a certain degree. Um, and the more that I do it, like the longer it goes on, the more I sort of like where I'm at. Like, you know, yeah. like the fact that I wasn't successful, like means that I'm not getting sort of ushered off the ride. You know, it's like, you know, you're not at the end of the ride where they're like, okay, right then get off son, you know, done with you, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. You know, whereas like, you know, we're just going to keep doing this. Like as long as people are doing it and I can still do it. Like I, this, there's no real end in sight at this point, you know? Yeah. Somebody asked me, uh, not too long ago. They're like, Oh, so when are you planning on retiring? I was like, retiring. What the yeah. fuck are you know. talking about? What does that mean? It's like, I mean, yeah, I feel, I think you just nailed it, Andy. I think you just nailed the entire point of this entire <laughs> podcast. Just kind of what you do, man. I, you know what? Thanks for doing this, and and uh, you know I love you, and I I, uh, I couldn't have gone this far without you, dude, and uh, I, I can't say it enough how much I absolutely uh, value value you and love you. I appreciate it, and I feel the same way. Like I feel I feel so blessed to uh, have you sort of um, entrust your art to my sort of uh, keeping, you know, like it's been an honor. Wow. And I, I hope to cherish that honor and respect that honor and, and um, you know, do right by it. You know what I'm saying? And that's that's like all I can hope for, for all, all my clients that, you know, I've, I've been so lucky to work with so many good people like, you know, yourself and the Tossers and Josh Caterer and our friend Blake and... Yeah going back to the 77 luscious babes and you know working with wes and like 
beer nuts these days, like even as silly as they are, like, you know, like these, <laughs> these guys, I mean, it's to me, it's like the people in Chicago that I've always admired and respected and cherished, like, you know, and I've been a part of it. And like, you know, how great is that? You know, how great has it been for me to like not only like sit on the sidelines and watch it happen, but like to actually get put in the game sometimes to go out there and like try and make that shot you know it's been it's been an honor and 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 a real blessing i must say well thank you and thank you Think that